You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. And so today we are actually going to be beginning a new sermon series called Eyes Full of Grace, uh, Following Jesus to the Cross, where we are going to be walking through the life of Jesus Christ as he leads us to the cross. And so this morning, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 through 13. So if you have a copy, uh, if you brought your Bible with you this morning, would you please turn there with me? Um, if you uh, don't have a copy with you this morning and you want to have a hard copy of the text, you should be able to find a Bible um, from a, under a seat near you. And so again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 through 13. So when you get there, uh, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands." Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Welcome. Welcome online as well. Uh, My name is Eric, if you don't know me. Uh, Before we get started, uh, I just want to remind uh, anyone who's a member here that we did send out uh, an email and text this week. Uh, that you should have received. If you didn't, please let us know. We'll try to get that to you. Uh, but basically, we are kind of right at the process where we're able to move forward as far as closing on some land. Uh, and we did send out just a lot of information. as a, a podcast, a kind of finances of the situation, a YouTube video about the heart of why we want to do this. Uh, and we're asking our members to vote on moving forward or not. Uh, and so if you get a chance, please do that. It's, uh, your vote is due at 11.59 uh, this evening. And so we'd love for you to get your vote in and let us know what you think. So just a reminder for that, please check that out. Um, like Lauren said, we are starting a new sermon series uh, called Eyes Full of Grace. And we're looking, really taking a look at really the, the last week of Jesus' life uh, before the cross and the resurrection. Uh, and just trying to point out um, or, or really kind of gain from some of his teachings and just uh, his life in general that we, we can really glean and learn a lot about the Lord, uh, and it's really cool to do that, and then we're, we're going to kind of carry that all the way through till Easter. 
And so very excited about this, this uh, series. We won't get to cover every single teaching uh, of Jesus or anything like that from this, this kind of portion of time we're looking, uh, but hopefully we're going to gather uh, as much as we can from it and enjoy it. So uh, today we start in Matthew 17, as Lauren just read, uh, of the moment of the transfiguration of Christ. I'm excited for that. I uh, would like to pray for us as we get into the topic uh, this morning. And so if you bow your heads and join with me, let's pray together. Father, we uh, ask a few things right now, Lord. One, we ask that you would be gracious and merciful to us as we open your word. God, we need you. We need you so much. We need you to see uh, your, your word, to understand it, to know how we ought to apply it, to behold you in it. God, these are things that only we could do by your spirit, not by our own flesh. And so, Lord, help us, we pray. Um, I ask also that all the words spoken today would be from you and from your word, not man's opinion. We long for that together. And lastly, God, I pray specifically that you would help us to see your glory. We know it is the enemy's goal that our eyes would be veiled to your glory. And God, we long for that not to be true this morning, that you give us clear eyes and a heart to see who you are, how glorious you are, and to move forward with you, we pray. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, God is glorious. I want to talk about glory today. This is what the text is going to talk to us about, and that's what we're going to discuss. Now, um, glory is an important concept. We exist, the whole world exists, the whole universe exists for the glory of God. That's, that's always been God's purpose in this life. You know, people through all throughout history have been asking this question, why do we exist? And that is the answer the Bible gives us. We exist to display the glory of God. And so glory is no small concept, and it's very important for us to understand. But it is also, if I'm honest about at least my personal opinion growing up as a professing Christian, that it is a very difficult thing to understand sometimes. Glory is one of those words that are just vague enough that you could say it a lot and sing it a lot and, if we're honest, maybe not have a lot of really connection with it on our everyday lives. And so I'm hoping this morning to just start off by defining glory. And I'm not going to use my definition because I would fail, but there was a definition that was given by someone else that was been very helpful for me. Uh, not only with this text, but in general with understanding the glory of God. And that's by a man named John Piper. He preached this in the 80s, though I was not alive then. But you can listen to it online. It's the beauty of it. It's like going in the past. Um, but uh, he defined glory this way. Let me read it to you. He said, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. Now I'm going to kind of explain the context of where, like, why he said that or in which he said that. But the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. And so if we think about what the holiness of God is, what is God's holiness? It's God being altogether different, right, and set apart than us. You know the song, what if God was one of us? Well, he is not, right? He is holy. He is different. He's not like us. He created us, and in many ways, in his image, but he is not like us. He has infinite perfection, infinite greatness, and infinite worth. That's what he embodies, we have none of those things. We don't even have perfection, greatness, or really worth. If you think about it, obviously you are worthy in Christ. But um, we don't have those things. But he is majestic. He is beautiful. He is magnificent. He is amazing. He is uh, awesome. A word that we have ruined. I myself included in the English language. I use awesome for like if my son does a backflip on the couch, right? But, but awesome, right? God is full of awe. He is amazing, right? 
This is the holiness of God. And so God's glory is the manifest display of this holiness. That's what it is. So when the angels in heaven, for instance, in the scriptures sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the earth is full of his glory. What that's referring to is God's holy character, nature, beauty, his essence, and how that is displayed in all of the universe and his glorious. So God's glory is attached to his holiness in such a way in which his glory is, his holiness displayed. That's how I'm going to define it. Um, that may not be the greatest definition, but it's one that's helped me kind of put a little more concrete uh, assurance on what it means to glorify God, to behold God's glory, and what we're going to talk about today in the text. And so, um, yeah, let's jump into it. I got seven points today. I know that sounds like, well, it's crazy. Okay, but I promise I ended right on time last gathering. It is going to be fine. I right, just seven ways that God reveals his glory through Jesus Christ uh, in this text is what I want to point to. And we're just going to kind of read through this story, go through it, and point these things out, and then have a little bit of application for us at the end. So let's start. Verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 1 says this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So my first point is that Christ reveals his glorified nature. Uh, so this is an amazing picture of Jesus displaying himself. Now, I do want to point out, this is not a full display of Christ's glory uh, because we know from the Old Testament in Exodus 33 and in many other places that when, Christ, when God like, reveals himself, it basically says that God, it would kill us, okay? Without a glorified nature, a glorified mind, a glorified body, you will die at the mere sight of God because he is so glorious, right? This is why when God reveals himself to Moses, he hides him in the cleft of a rock and God says, I'm just going to run by you. You're going to see my backside for just a second, all right? And, and, and does that and Moses' face literally shines from then on out because of what he had seen, right? When John, who is in this moment later in the book of Revelation, when he's on the island of Patmos and gets this vision of the book of Revelation, he sees Jesus in a more even glorified state. And it says that if, when he sees Jesus so bright and so glorious that he falls as though he was dead, he just lays there like a dead man when he sees Christ. And so in this moment, it's a glimpse, not necessarily a full-on display of the glory of Christ. But nonetheless, it is a beautiful, bright, shining display of glory. This is so different, right? We don't see people glowing and shiny and white, but Jesus is re revealing his nature. And I love that this also points to the truth that Jesus was not bound by his human nature, right? He did take on human nature. He humbly became a servant and lived in the flesh and endured all the suffering of the flesh. But at the end of the day, Jesus was not bound to these things, right? Jesus could at any moment have basically just took off his humbled state and exacted justice for all the suffering that he was enduring, right? But instead he chooses uh, to be in the flesh and to do this. Um, so it's a really cool thing of Christ is reveal his his glorified nature, his divine nature, which we'll get to in a second. Number two, Christ reveals uh, that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Let's look at verse three. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So Christ reveals this is my second point, is that Christ reveals he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. This is a really cool moment. There's a lot I want to say about this, and probably a lot I'm going to miss in explaining this, but this is a really cool moment in the text. And so um, Moses and Elijah show up, 
Okay, so it's important to understand who Moses and Elijah are and what they represent. Okay, Moses was really the prophet that God chose to reveal his law uh, to his people, right? And so Moses, you guys know the story. God comes in this great cloud of darkness on the mountain. It's very scary. People hear the voice of God. They tremble. They stick their faces in the sand. Moses says, fine, stay here. I'm going to go up. He goes up into the cloud, brave as he is, and God reveals to him his law, the Ten Commandments and all these laws, and God writes them on tablets. And there's a lot of the story we'll skip because it gets pretty crazy uh, and R-rated. But basically what happens is Moses comes down from that mountain. His face is shining. The glory of God is just shining off Moses. So much so the people are like, please cover your face. So after Moses gives the law, he covers his face, and then he has a veil over his face for I don't know how long. But crazy story, right? Uh, but through Moses, God was revealing the, the glory. He was reflecting the glory of himself through the law. And then you also have Elijah. Elijah here represents the prophets. And, and Elijah was a, a unique prophet in the sense that he never died. Just says Elijah basically just, you know, he basically handed over his mantle to Elisha. He walks off by the river and then he's just taken up in a flaming chariot, right? Like, that's how I want to go. Not through some painful death. That's how Elijah goes. But uh, Elijah was this amazing prophet. I mean, at a time where Israel was just uh, basically on the brink of desolation for all their idolatry and hatred for God. Elijah comes in and he restores order and worship. And though he does a lot of weird things too, uh, he's a great prophet. Now, um, you know, also kind of ushers in an era of prophets that we kind of read in our canon. Now, there's a lot going on here. Um, with the wording of the fulfillment of the law and prophets, I want to read one text that gives us some context into what I'm talking about here, and that's Matthew 5, 17. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is Jesus speaking about himself. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And so there's a lot going on here, but basically here's how I would sum it up, okay? Um, Jesus comes... With Mo, appears with Moses and Elijah, and he is, uh, that's the word I'm looking for. So he comes in agreement with them, and he comes as the fulfillment of what's been prophesied in them, okay? So Jesus is the Messiah that had been prophesied, uh, prophesied about throughout the scriptures, right? Through the Old Testament law, through all the prophets, uh, basically prophesying there was a coming Messiah that was going to make all things right, right? That was going to fix the problem of sin. And Jesus is, in his perfection and in his coming, the fulfillment of all of those things. And in this, it is so glorious that this is our Christ. Uh, and so um, there's a lot more in the, the verse 3. I'll maybe mention... Uh, We've got to give Peter a little bit of credit here. Peter gets made fun of a lot for this verse because his instinct, as soon as he sees all three of these like shining beings, is to say, well, I can make you everyone a tent. It's really good we're here because I'm really good at making tents. So I can make everyone a tent to stay in. It would be perfect, right? That's kind of his response. Now, we get from Luke that Peter and James and John were actually sleeping, and they wake up to this moment in the context of Luke gives it. And so we've got to give Peter a little bit of credit here, okay? He's sleeping as he always is. He wakes up, and all of a sudden, there's three shining beings who he somehow, though he's not meant the other two, knows who they are. That's, a, that's Elijah and Moses and Jesus. Now, a few mistakes Peter made, and then we'll get to a, a conclusion here, is um, one, he assumed that they would need some temporary dwelling place and a shelter to live in, even though there are these glorious beings in front of him. And two, in maybe a different way, he kind of, in his comment, makes them almost kind of uh, on par with each other as equals. But clearly Jesus is not an equal, he is God, right? And we'll get to that distinction here in just a minute in the context of where I get that. But if I could sum it up as this, Moses reflects the glory of God through the law. Elijah 
proclaims the glory of God as a prophet, and Jesus reveals the glory of God as God himself. Okay, that's what's kind of going on here. Which leads me to my third point. If you keep reading from verse 3 and 4 there to verse 5, it says this. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I love this line. It's about three things I get from this. Point number three is that Christ reveals his divinity. So this is an amazing thing. Uh, Elijah and Moses were servants of God, but Christ is the son of God. God saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased is a direct statement of him calling Christ God. Now, I just want to mention this because there have been many uh, evil heresies that have existed throughout history Uh, that say Christ was not God, but he was kind of created by God or whatever it may be. But at Providence, we have decided, because we want to be faithful to the Lord and the Scriptures, that this is a close-handed issue. Christ is God, right? We believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in this glorious moment, God, as he speaks down uh, about the Son to the disciples, is revealing through Christ that he is divine. He is God himself. He is, as the Nicene Creed says, very God of very God. This is Christ. The God-man who took on flesh is God. This is an amazing and glorious thing. In the same instance, we get to point number four. Christ reveals Trinitarian love, or you could maybe say Trinitarian pleasure, Trinitarian unity, whatever you want to put in here. But this is the point, is that this amazing line where God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I love this line because through Christ, God is revealing his Trinitarian unity and love and pleasure. Our God is a joyful God. This is important because God is not merely angry, though he is definitely angry. God is not merely just and vengeful, though he is just and vengeful. He is also joyful. He takes delight in himself perfectly in unity and in grace. It is a very cool thing. God is... um, unified, he is glorious, and he has eternal and everlasting love. And it is in that eternal, everlasting love for himself that we find ourselves, though undeserving, being loved by God. And this is a cool thing. And we get to hear that same line, in whom I am well pleased. It's amazing. Let's continue on. Uh, So with verse 5 in mind, the cloud, everything happening, continuing to verse 6, says this, When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And so, number five, Christ reveals his terrifying presence. Um, So, a cloud like this often represents God's presence uh, in the Old Testament. So, uh, the example we gave earlier about God giving the law, right, on Mount Sinai. What happens is God comes in this uh, dark, scary, uh, thunderous cloud with a thunderous voice that scares everyone, right? And in the same moment... Though it's a light cloud, not a dark cloud, God in the same way envelops the disciples in this cloud and he begins to talk and it is terrifying. They fall down and are terrified, absolutely terrified of God. Now, this is important for us to reflect on. God is both lion and lamb, right? He is both um, God and king and also gentle and lowly, right? God is not just... uh, loving and gentle in the sense that he is not terrifying. God is very terrifying. God is not tame, okay? God does not owe us anything. God does not owe anyone anything. God did not create you because he was needy. God has no need of anything. God is absolutely terrifying, and his presence in many ways should terrify us. 
We should be terrified of the Lord in a good way, okay? Not a bad way. And you'll see what happens, Jesus does next. But I, I don't want to belittle this point. Is that we are oftentimes, oftentimes, if we admit it, far too careless, far too nonchalant, far too numb in the way that we approach our God in the way that we believe our God's promises, in the way that we come into the presence of the Lord. He is terrifying. He is scary. And that's a good thing. And so Christ reveals his terrifying presence. He also reveals his comforting presence. That's number six. Uh, Verse seven, continuing on. But Jesus came and he touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. Like we said, Jesus is both the lion and the lamb, right? And so Jesus' presence is also very comforting for us. Um, it's hard to find an analogy that really gets this right, minus just saying what it is. But I think the analogy of a father uh, could be helpful. When a father is doing what he is supposed to do, he is both scary and comforting, right? He is both scary because you know if you mess up, the vengeance is coming and the father is big and huge and scary, right? But he is also comforting in which you know if you're in trouble, your father has got you, right? He's going to take care of things in the same way. That's how God is. And Jesus reveals this by stepping in, stooping down to the disciples, touching them ever so gently and telling them, get up, don't be afraid, and encouraging them and comforting them. I love that. If, if Jesus is not personal to you like this, if the relationship is not there, you will struggle always to believe the gospel because the gospel is the very essence of us being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. He is the mediator. Amen. And so... Jesus reveals the glory of God by being a comforting presence. And our Savior is at our side. And what a joy it is to have a relationship with him and to know him. Number seven, Christ reveals his divine humility. Get this from verse eight. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. I love this line because what happens is they basically the disciples are sleeping, right? They wake up. This amazing moment where they see all this like crazy glory happening. And all of a sudden there's this bright cloud that basically just surrounds them. They hear this terrifying voice. They drop to the ground. And then Jesus comes along, speaks comfort. They get up and look. And all of this scene is gone now. And it's just Jesus standing there again in his humbled state as a man. And uh, I think in this moment, Jesus reveals his divine humility. Christ, at any moment had the power to step out of this feeble human form that he took on, that experienced, not sin, but experienced all the hardships and suffering of this life. And Jesus at any moment could have stepped out of it and just exacted justice on the people who caused his suffering. He could have at any moment just said, this is not worth it, right? But Jesus, in his divine humility, uh, went back into his humble state as the God-man and set his eyes towards the cross. Set his path towards Calvary where he would give up his life for you and I. This is amazing. This is the humility of our God. This is what Philippians 2 talks about when it says he humbled himself and took the form of a servant, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? It's amazing. Amazing humility and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. As a silent lamb led to the slaughter, he sets his face towards Jerusalem and he goes. We, we understand from the, the book of Luke and the way it describes the story that what Christ and Elijah and Moses were talking about was his death. So we know at this moment he's, getting, he's 
uh, veiling his glory again, and, and he's walking towards his death uh, for us. It's amazing. Okay, so how do we apply this text? Or maybe what uh, considerations does this text give us? Let's look at verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And so Jesus says, listen, I know what you saw was intense, but don't tell anyone until I rise from the dead. And so one, this would be hard if you're bad at keeping secrets like me. You know, this would be a real challenge, all right? It's just like, can't tell anyone. But why? We've got to ask the question, why didn't Jesus want them to know? There's a lot of speculation about this, and I can pretend to have a lot of clear answers. But I do think that clearly this was to be uh, given an account in the Scriptures for our benefit. So we have to ask the question, how do we benefit from this story, apart from seeing God's glory, which is really going to be the main benefit anyways, but, but how does it apply particularly to us? Why do we need to see God's glory might be a better question. Why do we need to see this scene? What, what's going on here? How does this give us hope and strength? Um, I want to use a line. Uh, it's called uh, glory hunger. That was a term that was created, I believe, you may have got it somewhere else, by J.R. Vassar. He wrote a book called Glory Hunger, God, the Gospel, and Our Quest for Something More. And what I mean by glory hunger is that we as fallen human beings are glory seekers, okay? But we do seek glory in all the wrong places for all the wrong reasons, all right? That's our story, okay? We're supposed to be a reflection of the glory of God, but instead we search for glory in all the wrong places for all the wrong reasons, all right? So ever since the fall, and that's kind of what J.D. Vassar explains in his book, ever since Adam and Eve fell, like what, what was the first sin? Like what happened there, right? It was they were created in the image of God. Everything was beautiful. They were at harmony with God, had perfect relationship with him. And then what happens is Satan comes along and they believe a lie. Satan says, well, you know, God doesn't want you to eat from the, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if you do it, you'll be like him. God doesn't want you to be like him. God wants power over you, right? But the truth is they were already like God. They were already co-heirs of the glory of God. They got to be reflections, uh, perfect reflections of God's glory onto the earth. And what happened is they decided rather to seek glory that would terminate not on God, but on themselves, right? And they did. And that caused a world of problems for us. Can we agree with that, right? Sin destroyed things. And now we are so hungry and craving for glory. And we look for it in all the wrong places for all the wrong reasons. And so our glory hunger kind of works out in two major ways. The first way is that we seek for glory in the wrong places. So we want prestige. We want power. We want to be liked, right? If we can admit it, in some ways we want to be glorified whether it's your perfect life on Instagram or whether it's your inability to be honest in community because people will know how wicked and nasty you really are, uh, whatever it may be, right? We seek for glory. We long to be caught up in a story that is bigger than what we are. We are dissatisfied with who we are. We know that we are not who we should be, right? And so therefore we seek glory to try to fill that hunger. But if you can be honest... We're never satisfied despite our increasing hunger for this glory, right? And the other path I think that maybe we take sometimes is maybe after we've been on that first path for a while and we've sought our glory and can never feel satisfied that we just kind of become numb to glory altogether. And for us, it's easier just to kind of um, go off into coping mechanisms or isolate ourselves and we kind of just become dull, right? It's like this damning dullness that, that um, resides 
over us. And these are both bad things. So how do we remedy this? Maybe that's the better question. How do we fix this? What is this text giving us in order to satisfy this hunger and maybe reorient our desire for glory to where it should be, right? For it to terminate on the right things and to be given by the right things. And I would say this, by beholding the true glory and being heirs of that glory, we are transformed, okay? Um, and here's a few texts I want to give. The first one is out of this, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 3 through 6. Let's read this together. So maybe kind of explain what I mean by that. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light sound of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love that line and how it applies here to this text. So what's happening is the enemy, right, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. They gives the analogy of a veil being put over their eyes where they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as God in the gospel with his light shines out darkness, we now can behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ and we are transformed into his image. So how do we remedy this glory hunger? There's only one answer and that's to look and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's so easy sometimes, right? Do you feel it? Like it's so easy to come in and sing what we sing about the glory of God and read what we read about the glory of God and feel numb. We've got to admit this sometimes. Maybe not all the time and hopefully not all the time, right? Because what, what it means to be a Christian is to behold the Lord and be satisfied in Him and to be awestruck with his glory and to love him right it's not just an intellectual beliefs that we carry though those are true but it's more than that right it's savoring those beliefs it's savoring the God of those beliefs and so it's easy for us to be numb and we have to fight this it's the enemy's ultimate scheme to keep us from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and to look for glory in all the wrong places in all the wrong ways right so there's nowhere else for us to look but in Jesus Christ. We behold him and his word and we fight every single day to see and savor his goodness and his glory and his holiness. And it is in that that we are transformed and that we are um, set free from this glory, hunger that so plagues us because of the fall. I want to read one more text that kind of really sums up what's happening when we do this. And we're going to read a quote. And we're going to pray together. Um, 2 Corinthians 3 says this. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so gives this picture that when our face is unveiled by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the light of the Lord, that we are beholding the glory of the Lord, and in that we are being changed into his image from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to the next. And this is the picture of sanctification. It's the picture of our life in Christ. It's the picture of our battle in this life every single day to behold and savor the glory of Jesus Christ. And so 
Um, man, I want to pray today together that God would help us here. That, that when we pick up our Bibles, that we wouldn't be numb. Yeah, obviously, every time we read our Bible, it's not going to be necessarily this rapturous experience every time. It's not what I'm necessarily even prescribing. I'm just saying that we, we, we want to be looking and seeing and enjoying and loving the glory of God. This is what it means to be Christian. It's what it means to be alive. It's what it means to be free. It's to see him as he is. It's to behold him as he is. And there's, there's no sweeter joy in the Christian world. There's no sweeter comfort in the Christian life. It is all about seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to leave you with one quote from Henry Skugel. Great man, wrote a book, one of the best books I've ever read in my life, called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. I strongly suggest you read it. Um, it was written, I think, in the 1700s. Uh, and George Whitfield, uh, you know, obviously God through this book uh, says this is what saved him. It's a pretty cool book. Just check it out. Anyways, here's what he says in his book. He says, the true way to improve and ennoble our souls is by fixing our love on the divine perfections that we may have them always before us and derive an impression of them on ourselves and beholding with open face as in a glass the glory of the Lord, we may be changed in the same image from glory to glory, quoting that same text in 2 Corinthians. And so my plea this morning is may we always... Fix our love on the divine perfections. May we fix our attention, our energy, our joy, our strength on the glory of the Lord. And when we sing, holy is God. God, you're glorious. Your glory fills the earth. May we feel that from the depth of our being because we have seen and savored over and over again our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we are being transformed no matter what we do either more and more into the world as we behold the empty glory of the world or more and more into the Lord as we behold the glory of the Lord. And so let's look to that together. You guys have bow your heads. Let's pray together and we'll respond in song. Father, thank you so much for your word. And it is with right now humility and great fear and great joy that we beg you, Lord, to help us, to help us to see your glory. God, may we not be satisfied with any other seeing. God, all the things that we see pale in comparison to you. Oh, God, lift up our dull eyes. Strengthen our feeble knees. God, we need you. We want you. I pray that you would help us to behold your divine glory. May we see it and savor it all of our lives. I pray, God, for those who feel dull right now as they read their scriptures, feel dull as they hear the word of God, as they sing the word of God. God, would you come and rescue us from this plight? Would you lift the veil? God, that we might see you. Would you lift the veil that we might behold you, God, and see your glory and be changed in an instant. Oh, God, we need you. Help us, Lord, we pray. And would you help us, God, as a church to do this together and also not just to behold your glory, but to be proclaimers of that glory to a lost and dying world who has a veil over their eyes. Would you use us, God, 
to lift that veil from others that they might see and behold and Savior who you are, Lord Jesus. Thank you for filling the hole that we could never fill by wrapping us into your glory as co-heirs for speaking the words over us in light of the gospel of grace and what you've done, Jesus, that you are well pleased with us. Not because we've earned it, not because we're good, but because you're glorious, God. You are pleased to call us sons and daughters. You are pleased to reveal yourself to us. And in that, we rejoice so much right now. God, help us worship. Help us see. Help us know you, we pray. In Christ's name.